basically, my wife finds a way. If there's a way to fuck it up, my wife finds a way. She's like my fucking Jurassic Park life. Oh, oh, finds a way. <laughs> time of the year, there are a few guidelines all ghosts and goblins should follow. Always stay on sidewalks. Never go to a stranger's house. And never go out alone. There is no God! What shall I say when he knocks on my door? What shall I say when his feet enter softly, leaving the marks of his grave on my floor? Enter, my lord. Come from your prison, come from your grave, for the moon is arisen. Welcome, my lord. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? When there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk here. It's here. Can't you feel it? It's alive, watching, waiting. Whoever is beaten by a werewolf and lives, becomes a werewolf himself. I didn't mean to startle you. That's all right. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing. Just some things you gotta do. Don't mean you have to like it. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. Junkies and Cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 303 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is not only part two of our Halloween Horror Cast 6, but it is also the Acid House episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out that there was a synthesizer that is credited as having been used to create the first Acid House music tracks in the late 1980s, and it was the synthesizer... The Roland TB-303. Yes, and with that wonderful little bit of Roland Acid House knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from Spooktacular, California, would be our resident Sony employee, Tim! Yes, Spooktacular, California. I think California may very well be the least spookiest state in the in the United States. Maybe. Well, I guess we have a lot of extreme horror over here. <laughs> However, there's one thing I wanted to uh, to mention here, and I thought this was pretty cool. You're familiar with the Cinerama format of films, right? I, I know we've talked about it before. Here in L.A., there's a place called the Cinerama Dome that was built specifically for Cinerama. And the first Cinerama film was It's a Mad, 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 Mad World which is that ensemble chase comedy that I love so much. And they've only sure. made seven, count them, seven Cinerama films. And the dome's still there. They still show a lot of 
you know, newer flicks there and about once a year or once or twice every couple years, they'll show an actual movie in the Cinerama format. And that format, for those of you who are not familiar with it, back in the day, in order to project that film onto the screen, because the screen is long, like ultra wide screen, and it kind of gives you a panoramic feel to your movie, it took three different projectors projecting the film onto the screen and uh i saw it's a madman mad mad world there a few years ago and uh, i got a chance to take the most significant other the most significant other i guess that's probably a lot better than the more significant another because maybe the more significant other implies that there is backups but the most significant other kind of like that took her to go see it and I realized that the film looked absolutely beautiful. It was uh, uh, How the West Was Won. And it was the I, the very first time I saw it was last night. And I thought this was pretty interesting. They took the negative of the Cinerama film uh, negative of How the West Was Won. And they basically did a digital copy of it. And therefore, it's actually projected digitally and remastered in the Cinerama format. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Matt, have you seen How the West Was Won? I know you had a family member. I think it was your grandfather who was a big Western fan. Oh, yeah. My granddaddy, uh, my dad, even my stepdad. Uh, yeah, all, all, I have a lot of family who are into the Western. I have seen the movie... A couple of times in my life. I, however, have not seen it in Cinerama. Uh, I guess I'll need to fix that if I possibly can. Well, you will only be able to see it if you find yourself in either L.A. or London. Because there's only one copy of this film in you know that, that can be projected onto the screen. Because how they transferred it had to be done specifically for the Cinerama Dome screen. And the other theater is in London, believe it or not. So I, I found that awfully interesting and very unique. I choose not. I choose not to believe that. You said oh, okay. that I could believe it or not. <laughs> I'm going to choose to not believe it. You know? <laughs> I, don't, I have no idea where that came from, bro. I just... Yeah. Well, it, it, it stopped me. So I, that you succeeded. <laughs> I had no idea how to. I, it could have gone like two different ways. Either I could have informed you or we couldn't have gotten into a horrible <laughs> argument because maybe you knew something that I kind of didn't know. But then again, you'd still be wrong because uh, there were only no, two, I... though. Only two here in mm. in uh, L.A. Well, where I am in L.A. and in uh, in London. So I but highly you said they did a digital transfer. So if they did a digital transfer, how come they can't have one for each location? With Cinerama, because of the panoramic effect, uh -huh. it creates something called I think it's like a smile box, but there's kind of a a, a lip at the at the top middle and the bottom middle of the screen that makes. That, that gives the image like a curvature look to it. Okay. And that was specifically designed, and it specifically looks like that for the screen at the Cinerama Dome, because it's curved, it's slightly curved. Therefore, that film, it was transferred to the specifics of that screen. 
And the projector. And so the used. one in London is not the same way. It is the exact same way because the the screen in London was modeled off the screen at the Cinerama Dome. Right. So again, so so as long as the screens are the same, I guess I'd, if we did a digital transfer, wouldn't it wouldn't it work in both places at once? Like you could just take the digital whatever you have digitally and then take it to London because it'll work because it's the same screen. That, but no, that's, no, that's what, what I'm, I'm saying. It's like, yeah, you, so you're able to watch it. Uh, and I mean, you could either see it in the U.S. at the Cinerama Dome or go and see it at their version of the Cinerama Dome in London. Okay, I'm sorry. I thought you were saying that even though they had done a digital transfer, there was still only one copy. And it either goes to London or it comes back to L.A. Yeah, well, I mean, I was overhearing somebody's conversation. And these are people that are crazy cinema enthusiasts and know every single little bitty detail of all these movies that are screened. And I overheard the conversation overheard. Somebody said they only made one copy and I'm only guessing that they made the one copy because of, I I, I don't know, maybe like the uniqueness of it. And I know like their intention is to make these kind of films feel more of like event films so that whenever they do show it once a year, People actually want to come out and see it because they might not get another chance in another year or two years or so. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm just kind of guessing. All right. Well, cool. Neat info. <laughs> Very neat info. I'm thinking, though, we we still, I mean, this is part two of our Halloween Horror Cast 6. Can you believe, folks, we've done this now six years Six years of doing Halloween specialties. It's pretty bizarre, especially it took us almost eight, nine minutes of this episode to finally get to the Halloween theme of the episode. <laughs> well, I I am thinking that not everything has to be scary all the time, except, you know, looking at our email. That's scary. <laughs> because all the cobwebs. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you have no idea what kind of spiders could be clinging to the internet cobwebs there. But we do have something rather cool to talk about, so should we jump into our special discussion? We should, totally. Then here we go, folks. It's... Discussions with Matt and Tim. This time, welcoming Mr. Tim back officially to Discussions with Matt and Tim, Matt and Tim will be doing a discussion on the 200th anniversary of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And now, Discussions with Matt and Tim. Yes, thank you so very much, weird discussion guy and announcer guy. I don't know what your name is anymore. It's time to talk about Frankenstein. And I actually happen to have worked up a little something here about this. Uh, Frankenstein, it's, it's an essay, as it were. An essay, even. 
That's right. Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, is a novel written by English author Mary Shelley, who lived from 1797 to 1851. It tells the story of Victor Frankenstein, a young scientist who creates a hideous, sapient creature in an unorthodox scientific experiment. Shelley started writing the story when she was 18, and the first edition of the novel was published anonymously in London on the 1st of January, 1818, when she was 20. Her name first appeared on the second edition, published in France in 1823. Shelley had traveled through Europe in 1814, journeying along the Rhine in Germany with a stop in Gernsheim, which is 17 kilometers or 11 miles away from Frankenstein Castle, where two centuries before an alchemist was engaged in experiments. Later, she traveled to the region of Geneva, uh, Switzerland, which is where much of the story takes place, and the topic of galvanism and the occult ideas were themes of conversation among her companions, particularly her lover and future husband, Percy Shelley. Mary, Percy, and Lord Byron decided to have a competition to see who could write the best horror story. After thinking for days, Shelley dreamt about a scientist who created life and was horrified by what he had made. Her dream later evolved into the novel's story. And as an interesting aside, hers was the only story that ever came to fruition. Neither Percy nor Lord Byron ever even finished theirs. It is also heavily rumored that Percy had a hand in the authorship, though more likely it was edits that he had done, not necessarily writing for her. She was definitely the writer of this novel. And trans transitioning that into today... I actually am taking a class at Sam Houston State University is uh, studies in the English novel. And because it is the 200th anniversary, anniversary of Frankenstein, we have actually had guest speakers. We have had lectures done on this. And part of the class has been actually going over Frankenstein. And it's interesting because these are actual notes that come from the senior level classes at Sam Houston regarding Frankenstein. One of the things that is a convention of the early novel of this period is that it is actually a story within a story, and which means basically in the world of film that would be a frame narrative, except something that is extremely cool about Frankenstein is that it's rather Inception-esque because it is literally a story within a story within a story. We start off with this adventurous guy named Walton who is going to go and explore the Arctic regions and be the first person to kind of, he's kind of like a Columbus, but instead of making a way to the India Passage, he's going to cut across the top of the world like there's no North Pole and come across to the other side. And it is in this quest that he has that he comes across Frankenstein in the ice and Frankenstein tells him this story wherein he creates the monster and the monster is killing people and people are getting framed for the for the murders that the creature is committing and what's more most most interesting is that the creature is abandoned by Frankenstein and he comes to him later on because at this point he wants to beg for his own companion. The creature would like a companion as well. And he is forever known as the creature. He is never given a proper name, though technically he names himself Adam because that's what he declares Frankenstein should call him. I should be thy Adam. And he tells his story of what happened to him after Frankenstein abandoned him. So we literally have at the center of the story the life of this creature 
as then conveyed and told by Frankenstein, who tells this then as a cautionary tale to Walton. And it's really kind of cool that they put, that they put this in this kind of really neat frame narrative. It really goes to show just how ridiculously ahead of her time Mary Shelley was, even though the novel had a pretty balanced reception. It was just as equally enjoyed as it was hated. Honestly, on the Rotten Tomatoes scale that we would, that we use today, that people see, you would, it would probably be closer to the barely making it at a fresh rating, probably about a 60%. There were quite a few detractors of the novel as, just as there were a lot of people who enjoyed it. But what's interesting is that Walton and Frankenstein want to master nature. They both want to be in control. Yet, Frankenstein wants to tell his tale as a warning, which is interesting. And the narrative of Frankenstein is that he has got this idea of creating life. It's essentially alchemy. But it's constantly asking questions. The novel is asking questions. And again, all these questions, everything this novel is doing, ultimately starts to feed into the films that we see and, and that we talk about. It's asking, what do we think of that? What, if any, difference is there, or should there be, between creating life and bringing back the dead. Does a soul make a difference? Now, if you're looking at this in the just the scope of literature and comparing it to other great works of literature, you can see that it's making a comparison to Paradise Lost, which can really be an apt comparison because you've got the views of creation of Adam and Eve and all that kind of stuff as well. If you think about it in just the lens of the reality that you can see being portrayed in the films if you're not familiar with the literature side you can still ask what about parenting is victor a parent and if so is he a good one what about the similarities between the author and her life experiences with stillbirth before she wrote it if you notice there's a there's a distinct difference in the novel between how victor is raised versus how he treats the creature victor has this wonderfully idyllic life and yet he abandons the creature that he built. He created this creature to be the most beautiful specimen the world had ever seen. And yet, as it comes to life, he realizes, oh my God, what have I done? It's disgusting. And going back to the idea of creation, which is a wonderful question that's asked in the film, or in the films, because there are obviously the different versions. If you think about Genesis, or you think about Paradise Lost, how did creation work out for God? It's really, really cool that they ask all these kinds of different things. Uh, there's a professor, uh, Dr. Erin M. Goss from Clemson University. She actually did a, uh, she, she's got a, a huge academic paper coming out called Frankenstein, Dismembered Women and What It Takes to Be a Man that actually takes the ideas of the dismemberment in the book and also adequately portrayed i guess for the sake of being like the novel in the 90s version mary shelley's frankenstein where victor actually takes the the creature's request under advisement ultimately does put together this female creature but before he brings her to life he sees the creature smiling at him with this evil almost sadistic grin on his face and he's like, oh my God, there's just no way I can do this. 
And he really agonizes over this decision, but ultimately he's like, there's no way I can do this. And he hacks this already dead body of this woman, or many different women, I guess, hacks it to pieces right in front of the creature. And the creature says, oh, that's it. I shall be with you on your wedding night. And she, the, uh, Aaron M. Goss, takes this communicative act and actually talks about it as a way that men in real life and in literature, and she pulls from a lot of different sources, that men, she makes the case that men communicate their idea of power over women through the act of dismemberment. And you now, of course, you can agree or disagree or whatever, but it's just, I mean, this is 200 years later, and people are still finding ways to talk about this this novel that has truly affected all areas of life. I mean, it's gone into literature, it's gone into pop culture, it's gone into movies and television, uh, in on the stage, and it's in it's gone into other forms of writing and speech. And you think of putting together monster. It it literally has shaped the idea of what a creature can be or what monsters can be. She actually gave a talk at Sam Houston about a month ago, and she asks questions about you know, what does it mean to be human? How do we know if someone is human or not? You know, do you vote on humanity? Right? Rights are a big issue regarding whether or not humans are people or vice versa, depending on how it's being used. How are rights assigned? When? If you derive your rights from your ability to be responsible, is the creature responsible for the murders it commits? And if so, then the creature must have rights. You have the question of nature versus nurture. These are all things that go into it. And we all think that we know what Frankenstein is about going into a discussion about it, a line in science being crossed. But where is this exact line? For example, in the, in the book, for Walton, there is no line. And perhaps the discussion should be about where one finds their own line. And that line translates to so many different other aspects. And it's those questions, it's the way that it was infused in people's mind that actually led it to be something that was among the first of all films ever made. The first film adaptation of the tale, Frankenstein, was actually made by Edison Studios in 1910. Uh, it was written and directed by J. Cyril Dolly with Augustus Phillips as Frankenstein, Mary Fuerte as Elizabeth, and Charles Ogle as the monster. The 16-minute story has Frankenstein chemically create his creature in a vat. The monster haunts the scientist until Frankenstein's wedding night when true love causes the creature to vanish. Uh, as as an, another interesting aside, for many years the film was believed to be lost, and then a collector in 1980 said that, oh, he had acquired a print back in the 50s, but didn't realize how rare it was. So we do actually have that today, which is really cool. And it's interesting, because everybody always thinks about the lightning striking down and the the different kinds of weird electric things that could shock some heart back to life or bring the brain waves back and it's stuff that even parodied in young frankenstein in the 70s which for example used the original uh 1931 uh equipment the lab equipment and but then you see here in 1910 
that it's a chemical that, right? And what's interesting is the reason why everyone takes all of these different liberties is because in the novel, it's never explicitly stated. So again, Shelley, definitely not necessarily being fully versed in all things scientific, doesn't try to do something that she doesn't understand and she doesn't know about. She doesn't venture to guess. She simply leaves it as a product of her imagination to be a product of your imagination. And he just comes up with what he calls the spark of life. And that's what he uses to bring the creature to life. What's uh, So fast forward 21 years, we've got the first sound adaptation of the story, which is again Frankenstein 1931. This one, of course, produced by Universal Pictures, directed by James Whale, starred Boris Karloff as the monster. This film, of course, has been selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. Its sequel, The Bride of Frankenstein in 1935, was also directed by Whale with Karloff as the monster. It was followed by Son of Frankenstein in 1939, the last of the three films with Boris Karloff as the monster. Uh, of course, as we discussed earlier in, in earlier episodes, The Ghost of Frankenstein from 1942 marked the Universal series descent into B-movie territory, and later efforts of the studio combined two or more monsters, culminating in the comedy Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Meanwhile, if we go across the pond in Great Britain, there was a long-running series by Hammer films uh, focused on the character of Dr. Frankenstein, usually played by Peter Cushing, rather than his monster. Peter Cushing played Dr. Frankenstein in all of the films except for Horror of Frankenstein, in which the character was played by Ralph Bates. Cushing also played a creation uh, in Revenge of Frankenstein. David Prowse played two different monsters. Now, the Hammer films are a series in the loosest sense, since there is only a tenuous continuity between the films after the first two, which are carefully connected. Starting with The Evil of Frankenstein, the films are standalone stories with occasional vague references to previous films, much the way the James Bond films form a series. In some of the films, the Baron is a kindly, even heroic figure, while in others, he is ruthless and cruel and clearly the villain of the piece. And you can see all the ways that these films feed off of one another, but it's that mythos that keeps people coming back for more and coming up with new and creative ways to tell the story. And they don't always work. Sometimes they're schlock. Sometimes they're campy. Sometimes they're unintentionally good. And sometimes they're just fantastic. But it doesn't ever stop. I mean, even as for today... There has been a reboot film in the works for quite a few years now. Guillermo del Toro has been trying to get his vision made. For his reboot, Guillermo del Toro said his Frankenstein would be faithful, uh, would be a faithful, quote, Miltonian tragedy, end quote, citing Frank Darabont's, quote, near-perfect script, end quote, uh, which evolved into Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein. Del Toro said of his vision, quote, what I'm trying to do is take the myth and do something with it, but combining elements of Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein without making it just a classical myth of the monster. The best moments in my mind of Frankenstein, of the novel, are yet to be filmed. The only guy that has ever nailed for me the emptiness, not the tragic, not the Miltonian dimension of the monster, but the emptiness is Christopher Lee in the Hammer films, where he really looks like something obscenely alive. Boris Karloff has the tragedy element nailed down, but there are so many versions, including that great screenplay by Frank Darabont, that was ultimately not really filmed, end quote. Uh, 
Del Toro has also cited Barney Wrightson's illustrations as inspiration and said the film will not focus on the monster's creation but be an adventure film featuring the character. Del Toro said he would like Wrightson's design to design his version of the creature. The film will also focus on the religious aspects of Shelley's tale. In June 2009, Del Toro stated the production to Frankenstein was not likely to begin for at least four years. Despite this, he has already cast frequent collaborator Doug Jones in the role of Frankenstein's monster. In an interview with Sci-Fi Wire, Jones stated that he learned of the news the same day as everybody else that, quote, Guillermo did say to the press that he's already cast me as his monster, but we've yet to talk about it. But in his mind, if that's what he's decided, then it's done. It would be a dream come true, end quote. The film will, of course, be a period piece, yet it is unclear, even after all these years, what stage of development the film is in. Interestingly enough, Universal Studios has even developed, uh, had even developed their own cinematic universe featuring their classic monsters, so this was ostensibly cancelled after the failure of the Mummy remake starring Tom Cruise. Adam Chitwood of Collider wrote in December of 2017 that Del Toro was actually originally offered the reins of the universe, though he turned it down and he was offered the reins back in like 2009-2010 and that is just a very brief overall running history of 200 years of Frankenstein Um, there are really some great websites I encourage you guys to check out there is the Frankenstein project and that is going to be at frankenstein.asu.edu. You can go to frankenreads.org. And they actually have, even through the end of this year and into the first quarter of next year, all sorts of different events that you can actually look up, take part in. Some of them are uh, are physical locations. Some of them are virtual spaces. Some of them are other websites or movies or films or discussions that are going to be taking place. Uh, some are art installations. So you can check that out. There's also Frankenstein2018.com, which is working with various uh, other universities to kind of showcase everything that's happening this year because of it being 200 years. And even Stanford has a Frankenstein at 200. And so that there's Frankenstein2018.com, like I had said, Frankenreads.org. And then, um, you can, you can Google Frankenstein at 200 and then the med.stanford.edu website is actually going to have that there for you. It'll be the top Google search result. Um, and that is 200 years of Frankenstein in a nutshell. Through academia, through literature, through film, through technology, and now through me. Did you ever see Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein? It was like I 91, did. 92 or something. I was really excited to see that one because it was uh, it was tagged as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which meant it was truly trying to follow the book uh, in a much more religious aspect than had ever been previously attempted. Now, I want to stress that it was wanting to follow it more, more religiously. It doesn't really do that, but it throws in a lot more elements from the book than... So it succeeds in throwing a lot more elements from the book, but it it is not faithful to the book and it is definitely very interesting and very very 90s oh well, yeah it's well for 90s. sure i mean <laughs> most people consider mel brooks's young frankenstein to be the best frankenstein movie and granted it's not based on mary shelley's frankenstein but it seems like there's like 
enough of the mythos in there to, uh, I, I guess, to be considered one, one of the better films. I mean, do you consider that a classic Frankenstein film or should it automatically go to either Kenneth Branagh's, the original film from the 30s? Okay, I would say that... Because, I mean, really, there hasn't been a straight-up adaptation of the book. There has not. And again, that was what made Del Toro's version of the idea so compelling. I I really wish he had decided to take Universal up on on their offer. Perhaps we would not have gotten that fucking red mist fucking movie that we got we probably wouldn't have gotten that oh uh, are you talking the, about crimson stink crimson yes Peak? yes yes that one crimson yeah and we we probably wouldn't have gotten that and although i guess maybe you probably wouldn't have gotten shape of water either but i think we would have gotten a really good frankenstein movie well, The Shape of Water would have been his Creature from the Black Lagoon Black movie. Lagoon, sure. So yeah. I guess maybe we would have gotten it anyway. So there, so that is a very, very good argument for him still should having taken that. I, I would say that in terms of accuracy to the novel, for for all intents and purposes, I suppose Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is, like I said, it is the it's the one pulling the most elements from the novel. But you're right, we haven't gotten that, and I think in a way, though, I think that is probably a good thing because it allows people to really see the difference between the writing style of the 19th century. And it also lets people, because I don't think people really understand how simple, as we would think of it now, how simple a lot of the plot narrative is in the book, and how much of it was really just kind of assumed. And so they're like, oh, well, we'll just assume that people know about alchemy. And because people did a lot more reading on the whole back then. And so... I think it's really neat that they only pull certain aspects and then create a movie mythos out of it. It's something that hasn't really been done as well uh, up until, love it or hate it, until we got the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where they took certain themes and elements and styles and then created a movie mythos so that you can go back to the source material and still enjoy it for what it is without having to be beholden to it and vice versa. Now the, 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 where the comic books don't have to be beholden to the movies, Mary Shelley's book does not have to be beholden to its films either. Just the themes are there and they allow you to explore a lot of different things, a lot of other different avenues. As far as the movies themselves go, I really do think that 1931 kind of sets the standard. And then I think that Young Frankenstein reestablishes the standard, but does it through parody. And that is something that can be taken seriously on its own. And that is not meant to be an ironic statement. I think that there's a reason why parody is protected as a form of speech, as a form of expression. And... I believe that Young Frankenstein is important, has a lot of value, especially because, as I mentioned before, it literally uses the same props 
from the 1931 version of Frankenstein. So you're literally recreating that mythos. You're reigniting the pot. It's not just, it's not just nuking it in the microwave. You're really trying to warm it back up and give it its soul again, as it were. And what's, and the best part of it in terms of young Frankenstein is that it's almost as if young Frankenstein becomes its own version of Victor resurrecting the long-lost film that was 1931's Frankenstein, which kicked it all off, as far as the vast majority of people know and understand it. Um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein from the 90s, I think it has a place because at least, as I said, it tries to utilize more elements. Again, you really get the idea of a monster who, or a monster, a creature that is articulate, that understands what it's about and what it's trying to do. And it works in, it works in the idea of the bride and it works in the idea of what Victor did to recreate the companion for the creature. It just did it in a really weird and not necessarily likable way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I really would be interested to see. I think, though, it would probably have to be something like a miniseries on Netflix or Amazon or something like that, where they did a straight adaptation of the book. Well, the book's not very long, is it? I I have a copy of the book. No, I want to say it's like, I want to say it's like, 200 pages 270 pages i mean it's it's less than 300 pages so right it isn't and you know small book i mean it's not even you know if you made it like big pages eight and a half by 11 pages you could probably get it in well, 100 pages or something that's interesting i mean i definitely would like to see a mini series of it i think especially nowadays that everybody loves mini series and given the sheer amount of outlets for tv shows and miniseries these days i mean it's bound to happen sometime soon because unless the horror film is truly unique, and depending on who is behind it, it's going to be difficult to get audiences to come out in droves to see it. And with a movie like Frankenstein, with Del Toro behind it, it has to be good. It has to have great actors. The guy who he's been kind of teaming up with for years now, Doug Jones, mm-hmm. At least with me, it's quite obvious when it's Doug Jones. And when I think of the creature, Frankenstein's monster or whatever, I'm thinking of somebody that has to be kind of intimidating, right? Is that how he's described in the book, like an intimidating well, in the book, human? He's literally about uh, he, he's literally about eight feet tall. Okay, and I think that's where you go with Doug Jones because he's just so tall and lanky. You can build anything around him. I would also stress that they point out that he was trying to make him beautiful. Victor is in when he sets out with this thing, he's trying to make a beautiful being. He's not trying to make a monster. He's not trying to make this disgusting thing. But when he sees how it's all working when it comes back to life, the like he tries to put this beautiful face on him but he had to put two different parts on there and he thought it was going to work out well but then he sees that instead of it looking beautiful it's just this sickening half sneer 
and the face and the hair. He had the hair that he chose perfectly. It didn't, it didn't form right or form correctly around his face. And so instead of these gorgeous wavy locks, it's this stringy, nasty nonsense. And I, it's not necessarily that it has to be something huge so much as just tall. And you could definitely pat him out and make him a little, and make him bigger around, I guess. But in, like in the book, he strangles people. So he doesn't, I mean, he's not like he's beating them to death. He's not ripping right. them limb for limb. He literally strangles everybody he kills is because he strangles them. So I, I imagine if you think about the way that people thought back then and, and people felt about superstitions and stuff like that, you see this eight foot reanimated thing coming at you. You freeze up. He grabs you by the throat. You're dead. So I could see Doug Jones doing it. Sold. <laughs> <laughs> I think my first experience with Frankenstein other than growing up and watching the 1930s film and I think by the time I saw Kenneth Branagh's movie I might not have actually sat down and watched the entirety of the first two classic Frankenstein movies you know all, all the way through but I was definitely mm. aware of them I mean I know I've seen them in their entirety but in fragments you know in bits and pieces here and there and Right before I saw the Kenneth Branagh one, I saw the Gene Wilder, Mel Brooks, Young Frankenstein. So I, it's just interesting how I grew up watching Young Frankenstein, then I ended up seeing the Kenneth Branagh movie, and then finally getting my proper introduction with James Wells' Frankenstein, the, the very first rendition. But even before I saw The Bride of Frankenstein, I started watching the Peter Cushing, you know, 70s horror, or excuse me, the Hammer Horror Frankenstein movies. And it's just kind of interesting to think that probably the best Frankenstein flick, even though it doesn't align itself well with the book, but it's the sequel movie, was Bride of Frankenstein. It took me, you know, a while. That was probably the very last Frankenstein movie I watched. Right on. I've seen movies like Van Helsing and stuff like that where they try and put different spins on the on the creature. Uh, even Monster Squad. That we covered a while back. I, mean, I think did we cover that one last year? Uh, I think we covered that year? years ago. Okay, and even those kinds of movies, they often just fall back on the thirty-one style. Which I mean, that's what was parodied in seventy-four with a young Frankenstein. So that's fine, but I, I still would love to see. Like I said, I, ultimately, I would just love to see a new take, like in a mysterious format, whatever. Because my first one, were my first one that I can recall was I want to say it was either it was either Thirty One Frankenstein or Abbott and Costello. I don't remember which one because I saw them pretty close together, and it was because I had actually seen a documentary about the making of Frankenstein and how poor Boris Karloff was stuck in that makeup and that suit all day and how he had to be covered with a hood while he ate because he couldn't get out of the makeup because it took so long to put him in it. And so he had to walk around and it scared the piss out of people. And so whenever he would eat, they would put a, they literally put like a blanket over him or a shroud or a hood so that he could eat 
in peace and people would not be scared to death of him. That, I mean, that's just amazing. Movie, you know, history is just cool. That's all. Yeah. I mean, that was still a new medium at the time, you know, the talking pictures. And that just took the horror movie, you know, genre and, into the into the next level in film. So I couldn't imagine walking. I mean, even in the 40s, when Glenn Strange was walking around the Universal lot, he would freak the hell out of people. So, <laughs> And they'd had 10 years to get used to it. 10 yeah, exactly. Years to get used to it by that point. Exactly. Oh, uh, yeah. But, you know, and I think it's fair to say that we would definitely love to hear from you if you have, if you've been touched positively or negatively or what have you by any version of Frankenstein that you've ever seen, you know, let us know. Send us a, drop us a line, the show at slscast.com or hit us up on Twitter at the slscast. We'll, we'll definitely hit you back and share, share your thoughts and it'll just be a wonderful conversation because... It's not every day that in the movies we get to celebrate something like Frankenstein. And it really is something to behold in terms of the power of one person's imagination. Literally one person's imagination from 204 years ago on a dare, basically. Bet you can't come up with a horror story. And here we are. So never underestimate the power of a good idea. I think is, honestly, I think that's the lesson of Frankenstein. Never underestimate the power of a good idea. <laughs> Especially when you think it's a good idea and it turns out to be terrible, as it was for Frankenstein himself. Yes, and thank you to Matt and Tim for bringing me back for this announcement of the end of Discussions with Matt and Tim. We'd like to thank you again for listening to this episode of Discussions with Matt and Tim, where Matt and Tim discussed Frankenstein at 200, yes, 200 years of Frankenstein. Next week, there will be a three-squared, where Matt and Tim will talk about their favorite movies they watched as kids, defined as being under 12. Until next time, this has been Discussions with Matt and Tim. Alright, thank you very much. That was a way to close it out there, weird announcer dude. He must have been doing a little something special for us, given it was 200 years of Frankenstein, and it's the Halloween horror cast and everything, so... Yeah. But we still have movies we gotta get to, right, sir? We do, in proper movies to boot. Especially proper movies. So without further ado, folks, it's... Let's get into... This week are Dead of Night, The Night of the Hunter, Hour of the Wolf, and The Changeling. 
Uh, let's see. Dead of Night comes from 1945. Night of the Hunters from 1955. Hour of the Wolf is 1968. And The Changeling is 1980. So, Tim, do we want to do them in, uh, in, in chronological release order? Or did you have a special way you wanted to throw them down this time? No, let's do chronological release. Because I know the latter film we both thoroughly enjoyed. This is true. All right, so we're going to start right off with Dead of Night. <laughs> know this part of the world at all? No. I've never been here before. Like some tea, wouldn't you? You take milk and sugar. Milk and sugar, Mr. Craig. Milk and sugar, Mr. Craig. Still there. So it isn't a dream this time. I beg your pardon? Yes, it isn't a dream this time. I must be going out of my mind. You see, everybody in this room is part of my dream. Everybody. Gosh. Good Lord, really? Very extraordinary. You're kidding. What, all of us? I can only tell you that when I came into this room, I recognized you all, instantly. Having seen all our photographs in the newspapers, I take it up to their bathroom. <laughs> of course, you may have seen me on the sports page. Motor racing's my life. I can't make it. I can't make it. That's room for one inside, sir. It is the Mr. Rutherford, tell me about it. That's why I came back. It belonged to a man who was crippled who accused his wife just as you are now accusing me. Please, you must listen to me. You're sort of teamed up with him, aren't you? Him? My good man, think nothing of it. I'm just about through with that cheap ham anyway. Oh, You'll be sorry for this later, you know. Yes, suppose I will. Let's play another game. Yes, hide and seek. Who's to hide? I'll hide. I'll hide. Yes, the great hide. The for one more inside, <laughs> All right, so we've got Dead of Night, 1945 British anthology horror film made by Ealing Studios. The uh, individual segments, we've got multiple directors here, uh, directed by Alberto Calvacanti, Charles Crichton, Basil Dearden, and Robert Hammer. Isn't Basil just such a delightfully British name from the 40s? Oh, Basil. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help it. It always reminds me of, of Basil Faulty from it Faulty Towers. <laughs> Basil. Uh, and just Sybil. Yeah, no, that's all I think is just Sybil going, Basil. Yeah. Anyway, In a sense, uh, Sybil. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. So this movie stars Michael Redgrave, Mervyn Johns, Frederick Valk, and Roland Culver. Uh, the film is basically an anthology, as I already noted. So we've got a frame narrative about this guy who wakes up from a terrible nightmare and resulting in his wife saying, well, spend a, spend an evening or spend a weekend in the country. Get some fresh air. It'll help calm you down, get you away from everything. Come back to me, a new man. Okay, great. So, um, He's an architect. He's been invited out to a country home to consult on renovations, and he ends up getting there. That uh, he get, he gets there, and the guy who invites him, this dude named uh, Foley, Elliot Foley, he's like, you know, I man, I know I've never met you, but I've I've seen all of you in this recurring dream that I have, and so he 
kind of starts talking about you know bits and pieces of the dreams that he sees and this leads into everyone there talking about ghost stories and different legends and stuff and it is these different it 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 are it it, it, i don't know how to say this anymore it is within all of these discussions of legends and stuff that we get our actual different stories the hearse driver christmas party um haunted mirror golfer story and ventriloquist dummy these are all different stories some better than others but all interesting nonetheless and we then get this really cool basis in my opinion i think this film was actually the basis for the tales from the crypt movie that came out in 72 i think was the original one that came out in 72 because of just because of the way the frame device works as everything falls into place in a circular logic way almost as it were to the film itself i was i mean it's one of those movies that is really good because of the style it is it is presented in i think that they were they were smart in realizing that none of these things would have been good on their own and none of them would have even been good and when i say good on their own it's not that they just weren't good enough to be films in their own right but these wouldn't have even necessarily been good enough as short films in their own right there's just no way for these things to work on their own although interestingly enough the ventriloquist dummy episode was actually adapted into the pilot episode of a radio series from cbs at the time called escape and of course radio is different than movies and tv um and so i think it was really smart that they chose to make these interesting stories as part of a larger narrative. But I think what really sells the movie is the circular nature of the narrative itself. It really works to tie everything together and make it, I think, to to be very inventive. The acting is decent, although the filmmaking style, because of the way that they're going at this, um, and it's actually at a time when horror wasn't super popular in Britain, so the filmmaking isn't super, super great, but... It's the acting I felt makes up for it. Given the frame narrative and the fact that they chose to tell these stories in a particular, in this particular way, I really enjoyed this movie and I do give this one a four out of five. So what do you got there, Tim? Believe it or not, on Martin Scorsese's list of scariest horror films, this is number 11 on his list. I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, Dead of Night was a groundbreaking film. At the time, I mean, if you think about anthology movies, there weren't that many in any genre. It set the precedent for the British horror anthology films of the 60s and 70s that would come out later on. And, of course, there were the Italian, uh, the, the Mario Bava anthology films. He did a couple and many others that would that would eventually become popular in the, in the U- United States throughout the... 70s and 80s and even early 90s for the most part dead of night also established the horror anthology structure you know with separate stories that are bound together by a single wraparound story what's interesting is that the single wraparound story in this film it you really don't 
get it. And it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense until the last maybe, I don't know, two minutes of the movie. And what I found interesting is that while the audience is being hit with what the rap, what, what's actually going on, the ending titles begin to scroll up. So I thought that was very interesting. And I couldn't imagine being in the theater at that time watching that. And you go through like all these stories that were incredibly, I thought they were well-written. Every single one of them were, were well-written and well-performed, especially the ventriloquist dummy and the haunted mirror. I thought both of those stories were just absolutely haunting and, and freaky and, and well-told. I mean, in, in the mid-40s, I probably would have been freaked out by this. And I imagine a lot of audiences were freaked out by this as well. And especially in the United States, when at that time, we weren't getting a lot of well-made gothic horror movies coming out of Universal Studios or Warner Brothers or Paramount. It took Ealing Studios to make this film. And Ealing Studios has made a lot of great films. And they're known for not following the same rules that a lot of Hollywood films follow. They take the, the more mature route, especially with their themes and with the stories they choose to tell. And with this one, it's just creepy. And it continues to be creepy. And it doesn't ever really let up. I mean, you know something awful is going to happen at the end because it's just building to it. It's nothing that's absolutely ghastly. But it's kind of, it you know, definitely takes you back. At that time, audiences, particularly American audiences, I don't think we're expecting that. And lastly, the only other thing I have to note is that I just thought it was fun and well-written. I, too, give this one a four out of five. Gosh, our show's going to get really boring unless we get something we don't agree on, dude. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this would be true. I don't know. It might not be this week. All right. Well, then let's move into 1955's The Night of the Hunter. Ben never told you he'd throw it in the river, did he? I can hear you whispering, children, so I know you're down there. I can feel myself getting awful mad. Here is all the passion and suspense, the heart-pounding warmth of the best-selling novel that gripped millions. Wake up! Come on! Superb, unforgettable performances by an extraordinary array of talent. Figured I was gone, huh? Run. Hide in the staircase. Run quick! Ruby, shit! What do you want? I want them kids. I'm giving you to the count of three to get out of here, then I'm coming across the kitchen shooting. The combined powers of Paul Gregory and Charles Lawton brought the King Mutiny Court Martial to Broadway. Now the screen receives that same creative, electrifying impact. The Night of the Hunter. Which is, of course, an American thriller film. It's directed by Charles Lawton. Stars Robert Mitchum, Shelley Winters, and Lillian Gish. Screenplay by James Agee, or Agee, was uh, based on the 1953 novel of the same name by Davis Grubb. And basically what we have here is a corrupt minister who is actually a serial killer. And he he basically finds out that a woman has collected, a widow has collected a pretty goodly amount of insurance. No, well, it's not that it, it's not that it's insurance. It's 
The husband bank stole bank yeah. robbery. Yes, husband stole money in the bank robbery. Sorry, and I was confused. I've been I was listening to Lore today. <laughs> and it, one of the episodes I was listening to is about a woman who kills. She's a serial killer, killed over forty people for uh, for life insurance. And uh, yeah, great, great, great episode of Lore. Check it out. I'm sorry. So at any rate, yeah, we what we have here is uh, Reverend Harry Powell. He is a serial killer, and he finds out as he arrives into a new town, just having finished killing someone else, that. Um, there's a guy in town who had robbed a bank and killed two people. He hides the money in his daughter's rag doll. The kids, of course, uh, see what's happening, and he convinces them to keep it a secret. The He gets arrested and basically charged, tried, convicted, hung, whatever. He's now out of the picture, leaving the widow with these two kids, and the kids know about the money, and the, and the, the good reverend catches wind of it and decides to lovingly embrace this widow. He's really, of course, after the money. Now, make, to, to make it clear, you in the audience know he's a piece of shit. But you get to be just as frustrated as the children who also know he's a piece of shit. As the rest of the town, as their mother, as everyone who is around them rallies around this wonderful, sweet reverend who's got the power of God behind him, and 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 even he's got love and hate tattooed on his hands, which he uses in sermons, right? Air quotes there, sermons. But um, so it's he's he's kind of creepy. And yet the people love him, and so he gets around, he, he snows everyone. And you get to be just as frustrated as these children as you go through the movie until, as I always say, the shenanigans ensue, and we find out what happens. This movie for me, this was actually the first Robert Mitchum movie that I ever personally sat down and watched beginning to end based on it being Robert Mitchum. I... Did not know a whole lot about him until I watched Scrooged. And my mom was there, we're at home, we're watching on VHS. So it's probably like, I don't know, 91-ish, 92. And she, and, and Robert Mitchum comes on screen and she gets up and goes out of the room. And I was think I didn't think much of it the first time because I'm assuming, oh, she's just getting something out of the kitchen and getting a drink, whatever. And so she ends up coming back a minute or two later and we're watching the movie. He comes back on again and she gets up and leaves and I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, I won't watch Robert Mitchum. And I'm like, what did he ever do to you? And she's like, I'm, I'm too scared of him. I can't, I can't watch him. And I'm like, how did Robert Mitchum scare you? And so we, we went to the video store and tracked down this movie and we went and rented it, brought it home. And then she puts it on and she, she's like, watch it for yourself. And she leaves. She leaves. I'm left to watch this movie by myself. I'm like, I'm like, all right. And I mean, it was fantastic then and it is fantastic now. And I, I just feel really bad for my mom that she was so moved by his performance and feared and scared of everything that he represented that she could literally never watch Robert Mitchum again. This movie really, in, I mean, but in terms of the film itself, this movie really is great. And it's kind of like face in the crowd good. 
I, I, it's one of those things where there's a lot of moving parts, as in most every movie, but the vast majority of the weight of the film is carried by the one guy that has to be good and bad at the same time. And it's much like Andy Griffith's character in Facing the Crowd is the same thing here with Robert Mitchum as he plays Harry, Reverend Harry Powell. He is at his core evil. But he wraps himself so convincingly in a cloak of good that even though you know, it, you can't help but see how everyone else is getting snowed by him. Which is, again, what makes it so frustrating to watch. But it's expertly portrayed. I think this movie is fantastic. And there is a standoff scene in this film that I think could be a master class in how to draw out tension. I'm pretty sure Alfred Hitchcock was had to have been involved with this somehow. Inspiration, second unit director in disguise, I don't know. But it's just fantastic. And the pacing isn't overwrought either, which I think is really good for a movie like this. The other thing that is a big key is they got good kid actors to do good kid acting. That is a tall order especially in a film that is 63 years old. I absolutely think this movie is a masterpiece, and you've got to watch it. If you haven't, please watch it as soon as you can. Five out of five for me. Tim. The director of this film is Charles Lawton, and this is Charles Lawton Lawton's only film, uh, which is sad because if the name Charles Lawton sounds familiar and it's not because of the film, The Night of the Hunter, it's because he was a super famous film star, a silent film star especially. He played Quasimodo in probably the best adaptation of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, I mean, he's a famous face, more so back in the day than now. And he made this movie so visually intriguing because of his love of the silent films. He loved the way how the the early films had to convey the story and how they had to tell the story without any dialogue. So you had to have a very interesting picture. Look at the cabinet of Dr. Calgary. Look at Metropolis, even. They had to create interesting visuals and, and paint a character in, in a particular light to convey whether if they were good or bad. And so he implemented a lot of the these techniques and visual trickery into this film. Uh, and he also had a grade-A fucking amazing cinematographer on board. I thought I wrote his name down. Stanley Cortez. Yes cinematographer named Stanley Cortez. And he, of course, was the cinematographer on Citizen Kane's, or on Citizen Kane's, on uh, Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. So if you've seen Citizen Kane, I mean, that's another beautifully, beautifully shot film. Both grandiose and absolutely haunting. When you watch the movie without sound even, and we did this in back in college just to show you how powerful and what a great cinematographer and filmmaker can actually achieve with just visual film. You can watch Citizen Kane without the sound up, and you can still get an idea of what is going on. 
You know who is intimidating. You know how Charles Foster Kane transformed from this young guy who was an entrepreneur who had hopes and how he became this, people call him a maniac. And all that is interpreted by the visual style. And I I mean, I can't even begin to describe how wonderful the look of Night, the Night of the Hunter is. I mean, you see these beautiful arches in the interiors, the how, how they play with shadows. And when something awful is about to happen, they find a way to make Robert Mitchum look like a demon, like a ghost in the shadows. And also on top of that, they implement that song he sings. And it's a very ominous song where the kids, especially when they think they got away at the end of the film, they hear something off in the distance. And it's Robert Mitchum's voice. It's, a, it's the song that he's singing that the kids are all too familiar with. And they see him out in the distance. And it's almost like, and this is great, wonderful silhouette shot where the kids are in this barn and the boy's looking out the window and way off in the distance, you see Robert mention uh, mention the, the silhouette of him in the horse with the giant moon in the background. And he stops there singing the song as if that character, as if he knows that the children are nearby and watching him. So he's hot on their trails and it's just wonderful, 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 wonderful. And then not to mention the death of a particular character and the aftermath that you actually see, uh, shall I say, underwater. I don't want to give away too much. But if you are not familiar with this film, I think it's going to be something that's, that that will probably catch you off guard. And how it's depicted is quite startling, because especially in a film from the 1950s, a black and white film from the 1950s you, you you've never seen imagery quite like this coming out of an american studio the last couple things i want to mention here is that the film was obviously directed by someone who was passionate about capturing performances and knew how important it was to capture cinema and to use cinema as an art form and again charles lawton believed that because he came out of the silent films and unfortunately, the reviews for this movie and how the studio treated this film, it didn't lead to Charles Lawton's death, but it made him so unhappy for so long. I mean, he died, I think, just 10 years later on. After a preview of the film, the one of the, a studio executive turned around and looked at him and said, I didn't realize this was going to be an artsy film or this is just another art house film. It's not, we're not going to do anything with it. And so the movie never got popular publication or didn't get properly publicized or marketed. And it's just an absolute shame. Luckily, it's looked now as one of the best films in Robert Mitchum's career uh, and as well as Shelley Winter's career. They both give wonderful performances. I, too, give Night of the Hunter a five out of five. Okay, that takes us from a Night of the Hunter. We're going the fast Night forward. of the Hunter. I missed yes, the, the I missed Night it. of the Hunter. Yes, I guess I should make sure to specify that it is the Night of the Hunter. We're gonna fast forward thirteen years and take a look at some Swedish surrealist psychological horror drama, Hour of the Wolf. The Hour of the Wolf 
is the hour between night and dawn. It is the hour when most people die, when sleep is deepest, when nightmares are most real. It is the hour when the sleepless are haunted by their deepest fear, when ghosts and demons are most powerful. The hour of the wolf is also the hour when most children are born. Ingmar Bergman's Hour of the Wolf, the hour in which reality becomes a mockery of madness and masks hide behind faces. The hour of all final moments. This one here is directed by Ingmar Bergman, stars Max von Sydow and Liv Ullmann. Um, all right. So basically what we're getting here, this is another, this is a, another frame narrative film, but it's, it, it's related as a first person narrative. It's, it's being told to you from Alma. And she talks about her husband's disappearance, and she basically you and, and it's going into a flashback at that point. So she's t- telling you the story, and then it goes into a flashback of this uh, painter, and he's trying to re- rest and relax. There, he's had some kind of trauma, some kind of issue. They don't ever really talk about what it is, and he keeps coming up with these weird people uh, or these people keep coming up to him or whatever. And he thinks that they're demons and he starts giving them really weird names like the meat eaters or the schoolmaster or whatever. And all of these things are affecting his ability to sleep. Um, the every, but everything that happens in the movie is done in such a way that it's it's happening in in a very surreal manner and basically poor johan again played by von sadow um is basically just losing his marbles every step of the way everything he thinks that he sees he starts to believe and he starts to buy into and now he's starting to think that he is it's very hard to describe. <laughs> I think it's kind of like an older version of the movie Mother in some weird way. I kind of got yeah, that feeling while watching it. it. It is. It's very, very difficult to kind of put it all together in a in a simple way to describe the plot. But basically, Johan is just going into it's it's his wife Alma is relating the story of his descent into madness and how everything is is everything is interconnected everything is real birth and death happens at the same time and you're supposed to i guess pull from it whatever it is that you need to pull from it um it is a very surrealist style film i will say that this movie in and of itself is not 
for me. Now, that's not, I am not saying that as a knock on it, and I am not going to be like hating this movie because it's not for me. Because even though I am not a fan of this particular style, and it was also, even though it's a straight surrealist style and it is psychological, it, it's coming from an era that was highly experimental. And this is also Swedish. And so it's, it's experimental in a way that most people here in the States would not necessarily be familiar with. Myself included to a certain, to a certain degree. But one thing that is absolutely true of the whole movie throughout is the quality of the filmmaking is on point. And even though I'm not a, the biggest fan of the plot and I'm, and it's hard to describe, it's still really, 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 really interesting to watch. And based on that, I give it a 3.5 out of 5. I think it's worth giving it a shot. You might not get anything out of it just like I didn't, but you can still appreciate good filmmaking when you see good filmmaking. Um, and I think I'm more forgiving on this one than I was on Mother because this is a different time. It's a different place, and it's meant to be experimental. I think Mother was trying to be more than what it really was. Uh, yeah, so there you go. 3.5 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? I like this film just a little bit more. I gave it a 4 out of 5. Thoroughly enjoyed the writing in this film. I mean, just the creepiness of the line, it is the hour when most people die and children are born or being born. Absolutely. One of those creepy matter-of-fact lines that Max... Von Sydow tells his wife in the film, like they just sit down and he just mentions it. You know, it's the hour of the wolf. She's like, why do you have problems sleeping? He's like, I don't know, but it's this hour that I have the most trouble that I'm haunted the most. And it's, it's, it's very much, it felt very much like I was watching a movie about this man just self-destructing. You know, he finally cracked. He's one of these artists who's being praised by all these weirdo rich fucking people and he can handle the praise up to a point. I mean, they these people treat him like he's a god because he's this he's a he's a well-known painter. And there's only so much of that that sir I mean, it takes a certain person to accept that. You know, you have those that believe it. You have people that are just like, okay, thanks, thanks for, I'm glad you think that, but, you know, I'm really not, I, you know, I just enjoy painting. But then you have those people that have this, like, moral struggle, you know, the struggle within to try to figure out what exactly does that mean? What does this mean? Who, who am I because these people think this of me? So I found a lot of that very interesting, and... A lot of that is not only just conveyed in the writing, but also Von Sydow's performance, uh, the side characters' performances as well. I also enjoyed the monologues, the 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 lines that Alma, I believe her name was Alma, was giving to the audience, like looking directly into the camera at the audience, and just how all that was framed and shot was beautiful and it was just very interesting it wasn't just like her in front of black you know and just she was just like a, a, a talking head telling the audience this to be um 
you know, creepy or scary or, you know, all the, or mysterious, but it was just like a matter of fact, like, look, this is the story. This is what happened. But of course she says it in a very articulate way. This is definitely not Bergman's best film. In fact, there are a number of other films that are significantly better than this film. Look at Seventh Seal, for example, also starring Seadown. But of course, what you get in this film are the highlights of what makes Bergman's films a Bergman film. For example, there are plenty of lingering close-ups. That is his iconic shot. And he likes these close-ups, these lingering close-ups, because they express anxiety or drama or tension that these characters are experiencing. And this is all being done for the viewer. And there's so much you can accomplish to convey all this with a lingering close-up. That's all I'm going to say about this film. I have a lot of talking points, but it's definitely not my favorite Ingmar Bergman movie. However, it's probably my fifth, so it's still up there. I give it a four out of five. Highly recommend it if you are a Seedell slash foreign film fan. Right on. All right, well, then that is going to bring us to our final movie of this week. 1980s, The Changeling. Within this old house live two residents. One of them is John Russell, composer, professor. The other has been dead for over 70 years. Claire, I'd like to talk to you about the house. Is it in that house, Claire? What is it doing? Why is it trying to reach me? It's a hand. Senator, I'm John Rustin. I'm living in your house. Senator, look. Look, I want to show him that. You've got something of the senator's. He wants it back. Many films will frighten you, but only a few can really terrify you. The Changeling, an experience beyond total fear. All right, we got a psychological horror film directed by Peter Medak, starring George C. Scott and Trish Van Devere. Uh, basically, follows an esteemed New York City composer who reloca- relocates to Seattle. He moves into a mansion, and he comes to believe that it is haunted. Um, now, what's interesting to note is that the screenplay is based on events that writer Russell Hunter, who is one of the writers of the film, along with William Gray and Diana Maddox, uh, claimed he experienced while he was living in the Henry Treat Rogers Mansion in the Cheeseman Park neighborhood of Denver, Colorado in the late 1960s. So, I guess you could say it's even partially based on a true story. But basically, yeah, so... George C. Scott plays John Russell. He's a composer from New York. He moves to Seattle, and he's there on his own because his wife and daughter have died in a traffic accident. He rents this large Victorian mansion, 
from a local historic society. And the agent, who's played by Trish Van Devere, her name's Claire, tells him that the property's been vacant for 12 years. Now, after moving in, is John is, starts experiencing weird things, and he slowly begins to put together that someone may have had an unhappy experience in the house, to say the least. He gets a hold of Claire, they investigate, shenanigans ensue! as I always like to say. Now, this movie is uh, is not a movie I was actually aware of. I am a fan of George C. Scott. I like most of the stuff that I've ever seen him in. And I just was not aware of this movie on the whole. I, I found this movie to be a complete surprise. I really, really enjoyed this movie. This is... Late 70s, early 80s cinema done right. It really is good at creating that classic atmosphere that is slightly dated. Uh, things that you can see were literally learning from other great thrillers of the era, but also being slightly influenced by films like uh, 1978's Halloween. Learning, it's, it's, it's that learning curve. It's these things that are a good combination of old and new ideas. And it's just well acted by, I mean, come on, it's George C. Scott, so you know already it's going to be fantastically acted. But, I mean, it's not like George C. Scott is perfect, right? Firestarter, anyone? <laughs> but um, it is still a very, very great performance i think though that this film is really carried by the story and by the villain our senator joseph carmichael i think melvin douglas is a very good bad guy in this film and he's not quite a tragic bad guy but he is a but he is a bad guy with some depth, and it's always important, especially when you're dealing with psychological horror, um, really glorified ghost stories, that you need to have something in the physical realm that makes the makes what the ghost is after compelling, and you can see that in the character of the senator. He's um, and again, it makes for great interplay, and it also makes for a great way for the ghost elements to react, to interact with the real world. Um, the only problem with this film for me is that despite it being an hour 47, I think it's really about 10 minutes too long. I think it could have been closer to an hour and a half. Certain elements in the setup tend to drag a little bit. And I think that's more a... I think it's where we're starting to see that 70s style of cinema that I've been talking about over the last couple of months. We're starting to see that get shed. And we're starting to see some things tighten up. We're getting into that stuff where people want a little bit more adventure. Where people are saying, yep, we get it. Let's move on. Let's get on with it already. And um, I, I think that uh, that is starting here, but it would have been better served with a little bit tighter editing. 
Overall, I give this one a 4.5 out of 5, and I highly recommend that you add this to your Halloween viewing if you are in that kind of a state of mind. If you're one of those people who loves to get as much horror in, this is definitely something you should add. 4.5 out of 5, and bring us home, Tim! It's an impressively made, entertaining horror mystery flick. I enjoyed this movie like how I enjoyed the two Conjuring movies, you know. They have problems with them, but they're entertaining. They're fun. This movie has more drama to it. It comes across maybe a little sloppy, whereas... Maybe back in the uh, in the seventies, early eighties, people were able to maybe accept it a little bit more as like a as a dreamlike type of movie. I'm of course referring to these like astral body moments that happen throughout the movie, but the most convoluted time that it does happen is at the end of the flick, where they try to wrap up the story and they try to bring the quote-unquote, I guess, bad guy into the mix, and how are they going to bring him into the mix when he's nowhere in sight or not even where the ending is taking place, I guess? Well, we're going to, you know, he's going to have an astral body experience, you know, and he's going to show up in in that way, and you know what? It's going to make sense. Well, it kind of makes sense, unless you really don't know what is going on. So you want to make sure when you sit down and watch this movie, you have to sit down and watch this movie. It's creepy. It has some great set design. And, you know, some of the effects are still pretty fun to watch. Again, it's a movie that I enjoy just watching, like how I enjoy watching The Conjuring movies. It's just entertaining. And hell, you can't go wrong with a talented director behind the camera, great set design, and George C. Scott. Four out of five. Thoroughly enjoyed it. All right. Well, that definitely brings us to the end of the movies this week. Uh, next week's movies are going to be Bohemian Rhapsody, the 2018 version of Suspiria, Old Man and the Gun, and Colette. Uh, or at least some combination of those four movies. We'll see what's happening. And without further ado, I think we have now finally made it through yet another horror-tastic Halloween horror cast and should move on to the spiel. What do you say, sir? Spiel on. Oh, Stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's going to catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck a rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. It's a cutting thing. Say, 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 Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Rise of Solace. And you can reach out to them at Facebook.com and ReverbNation.com, both slash Rise of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. If you want to come aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter, if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud and 
and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, we would love for that to happen over at Patreon.com. Check us out there. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to George C. Scott, I get to say this. I've never... I've personally never seen a a porno film or had any desire to. It would be like invading someone's privacy. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you next week. Have a happy Halloween. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.